0: If you guys want to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. I'm... There's, there's two ways to hear this uh, message this morning. There's probably more. I'm just giving you two ways. The first way, though, As you could come at it and you could say, hey, the Bible is outdated, it's faded, it's an antiquated book, and the text we're looking at today was written 3,500 years ago. It surely can't speak to us today. That's one way you could come and hear the Word of God today. The second way, the way that I'm going to land, is this is the living Word of God, and God speaks to us today through His Word, by His Spirit. And we learn more of who we are, who God is, we have examples of what to do, what not to do, and and we're praying and hoping that God's word by his spirit will continue to shape our hearts and our minds, that we'd have a, a greater biblical worldview, a greater way to look, to see God's good creation, to see ourselves in view of God, and to walk according to his ways. So one way is like, no, God has nothing for me, this is done. The other comes with faith and say, this is the living word of God, and and God uses preaching of all things, proclaiming his word to do a work in our hearts and lives. And I pray that's what he would do for us this morning. So we're gonna be in Genesis chapter nine. If you wanna stand with me as we read God's word. Again, the reason we stand is just, just to reverence. This is the word of God. I'll be starting just at 820, Genesis 820 for context. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and took some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you and as I gave you the green plants, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk. And lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his brothers outside. Then Shem and Jathef took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. May God bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. So are looking at Genesis chapter 9, I want us to see God re-establishing humanity. God re-establishing humanity. Kind of three uh, different parts of scripture, and as I was looking and studying, I'm like, kind of, what's the main thread that works its way throughout? And the main thread is God. God's, God's the main thread. This is following the flood, right? Like the world was wiped out by the waters of the flood and, and they got off the ark and now God is reestablishing humanity. In the first section, I want us to see God's call to multiply. And then the second section, we see God's promise to preserve. And then in the third section, I really want us to see, among other things, God's people aren't perfect. So if you look with me in the first section, looking at verses one to seven, God's call to multiply, you'll notice This is a kind of a renewal of the divine mandate like we see in Genesis 1 that was made to Adam and to Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It says in verse 1 and verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So that section is kind of surrounded by that command to be fruitful and multiply, and everything in there is kind of talking about multiplication. So again, they were to to fill the earth. They were to spread out. And we see that as we read Genesis 11, they didn't do that. They multiplied, but they didn't obey God's command to spread and to fill the earth. And and as we'll get to Genesis 11, we know that God ascends them out. And again, how were they to multiply, be fruitful, multiply? Well, we know the answer is that in Genesis 2, that Adam, he was alone. It wasn't good for him to be alone, and so God created woman that man and woman would come together, that they would become one flesh, we see that that would be marriage. And one of the reasons they come together as one flesh is is to multiply, is to have children. And so that is how they were to multiply, husband and wife coming together. And so that's kind of setting the context for the next things that we read there in scripture, God's call to multiply, uh, to basically to Noah and his sons, but really it was his sons and his wives That did. It It doesn't seem like Noah had any children after this time. Again, thinking about the multiplication, look at verse 2. There's this command that God gives, or this word. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So we see here this changing relationship with the animals, right? As as Vance already highlighted before this time, humans were vegetarians, animals were vegetarians. Then the fall happened, but after the flood, now now they can be barbecue. Can I get an amen? <laughs> like if you just think about that, before the flood, yeah, everyone was a vegetarian. Or seemingly, maybe the animals started eating one another because of the curse, but then after the flood, God allowed them to eat animals. And I think there's a number, number of reasons why they got the fear and dread of man put on that. Well, one, because they would be eaten, <laughs> but also because there were only eight people, eight humans who got out of the ark. All the animals get out of the ark, and all the animals can repopulate the earth, like, very quickly. Like the gestation period, right? For animals, having babies and multiplying very fast. Humans, it takes nine months. And so there's like way, there are gonna be way more animals than there is humans. So God, and, and he's like, hey, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. and we're gonna put the fear and dread of you in the animals because there's gonna be so many of them. That you don't want the, the eight humans that are there to get devoured. So that's part of it. Cattle isn't mentioned because if anyone's dealt with cows, They don't have the fear and dread of of humans they don't really care (laughs) they're domesticated animals but we've all maybe experienced the fear and dread that that animals have i don't know if you've ever been out hiking we were with um some people recently they're from ontario in the mountains and they're so scared of the bears it it was a season they come down out of hibernation the reality is though bears are scared of you just as you're scared of them right i still hope i don't run into one. i still carry bear spray but the reality is if you like come across a bear, most of the time they're just going to run away. We see this in all types of animals. My kids have guinea pigs. These, these, these little animals are scared of their own shadow. <laughs> you try to pet them, they're gone, unless they're hungry. It's amazing what hunger does to drive away fear, right? That's the one time we'll see wild animals, if it's hungry enough and coming towards you. So the, these, um, <clears throat> these animals had the fear and dread put in them, and now mankind was allowed to eat them. And if we, we keep reading in the Old Testament, that at some point we'd see uh, Moses uh, bringing the people out of Egypt, and there were dietary laws that were put, there were restrictions. You can eat this animal, not that animal. And some people still hold to that. But then if you would keep reading in Scripture, we'd see in Acts chapter 10, Apostle Peter, he had a vision. And he had this vision happen three times. All the animals of the world in this sheet come down and it says, eat. And he said, no, I've never eaten any uncommon, uncommon thing. And this voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Therefore, like all the animals are available to eat. And all the people said, amen. <laughs> so th- this is just what you can see here in this section. You, get, you eat the animals, they'll be scared of you, so they won't eat you first. If you're just it, just like putting it down quite simply. I want you to see also what, what's happened. They're allowed to eat the animals. And this phrase is said in verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Now, what is being said here? Like the, the blood that's flowing through the animal, kind of like that is its life. And we see maybe more talked about it as we work through scripture. Talking about giving animals as sacrifices, it says this in Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Like that—that's the animal's life that flows through it. It's in the blood. You're not to eat the blood. And even that picture—that it's life. It's in its blood. And then, as you give a sacrifice, that blood shed is the cover over sin. Uh, we see that happen for all of us in Jesus Christ thinking about how precious blood is, that his blood was shed for us. Hebrews 9.22, it says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So there's something about the blood that's an animal, you're not to eat it because that is their life and how amazing it is then that Jesus shed his blood for us uh, to cover over sins. But you see there in Genesis, this command to eat the animals and command not to eat the blood is is linked to the next section, verses five to six. And God said this to Adam and his sons, or sorry, to Noah and his sons, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We see here the value of human life, like be fruitful and multiply. Any animal that takes a human's life, kill. And we even see that today, say if a, a bear, a wild bear kills a human, you kill the bear. If a dog, a, a, like a r- rabbit dog escapes and like kills someone, you kill the dog, you kill the animal. So we're still being obedient to that. But like why does it matter? And then another human is not to take another human's life. But why? Because they're made, every one, in the image and likeness of God. That's why the value of human life comes because of who made them, the creator, God. Reiterates God's image. That's what gives us value. People can't just do whatever they want, which was actually happening before the flood. Right? We see this as sin entered into the world. Genesis 4.21 Lamech, a descendant of Cain, Cain who killed his brother Abel. Lamech says this in Genesis 4.23. says to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, just boasting about he did whatever he wanted. It said about this before the flood in Genesis 6.11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. People were doing what they wanted, destroying one another, coming out of the flood, be fruitful and multiply. You can't take another person's life. If you do, it'll cost you yours. Why? Because life is so valuable. That's the big thing I want you to see, the dignity of human life. So even as they're coming out of the flood, we also see there in in verse 6, And whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. Like there's someone to be responsible to keep this. We also see kind of like this forming of government. That there should be humans in charge. If you take someone's life, you're going to be held accountable and someone else is going to take your life because of the value of it. God commands punishment from his fellow man. Henry Morris says this. The essential point is that man is hereby given the responsibility of human government that this responsibility entails, first of all, the recognition of the sacredness of human life and the recognition of capital punishment as the just and legal penalty for murder. We see this strengthened, reiterated in the New Testament. Just bring your attention to Romans 13. Romans 13, just looking at verses 1 to 4, Paul wrote this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. But see this in verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. For if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain." For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's talking about what God instituted uh, to Noah and his sons right after the flood. If you you take someone's life, your life will be taken. The government doesn't hold the sword in vain. I would just say this about Romans 13, but not chasing a rabbit too far. When they're talking about bearing the sword, punishing evil, the wrongdoing, it's not talking about churches who gather and worship. right? I, I don't think that's what Romans 13 is. It's not this blanket statement that... Everything the government says, you must obey. You obey God first. But ultimately, they're, they're put in place. They are to punish. This is something, an institution God has created. And if someone takes someone's life, the government was to be there and have the sword and take the person's life. We see this uh, throughout scripture. So it's interesting. Right there, as a out of the ark, we see the death penalty, if we will, if we would call it that, instituted. But the reason it was instituted was to preserve human life because human life is so precious. You can't just go around, you kill someone, you've forfeited your life because it's so precious. But in Canada, we, uh, we've done away with the death penalty, 1963. Of course, I had to Google it, that wasn't off the top of my head. Great Britain, right around the same time, 1964. It's more if you look up the death penalty, the more they tell you when countries quit doing it. That, that's more the norm, right? That's kind of our society. In the States, there's 27 states who still have the death penalty. Federally, they can still do it. But reality, our world, you know, continues to like, we, we devalue human life so much that we're, we're not, okay, someone kicks someone's life and kills them, we're gonna deal with them in a different way. But why the death penalty again? Because all have inherent value. No matter where you were born, your background, economically, socially, whatever, we all have value. I want you to see that in this text. I think that's the biggest thing. Because we are made in the image and likeness of God. This is significant. This is a biblical worldview. And having the right view of God and self and of murder, it keeps us anchored to the importance of human life because of the Creator. Right, we need to hold to the sanctity of life. We need to teach the next generation that all lives matter. Not to use that phrase, but actually, like from the unborn to the elderly and everyone in between, life matters. Forget what we're hearing, why does it matter? Because we're made in the image and likeness of God. Whether someone fears God or not, their life matters. And have value. And again, just think, Think of the secular, the humanistic worldview that cheapens or lessens the lives of people greatly, right? That hey, we're all just accidents, just a series of evolution. That's just how you came to be. And so it really doesn't matter if you no longer exist anymore because you're just an accident. And we, so we see that mindset brought into our, our culture in terms of abortions. Where people, hey, I have the right to choose. I have reproductive rights. What about the rights of the baby? Ideas have consequences. We see that in in euthanasia. In terms of assisted suicide. Hey, you're, you're old, maybe you don't like. We'll murder you. Because our society has become unanchored from a biblical worldview. And so we see the consequences of that. But again, all this is, is being said in the context of God's call to multiply and fill the earth. It's undergirded with the, the fear put in the animals and the sanctity of life. Be fruitful and multiply. We see God's call there. Look at with me again Genesis 9 8 to 17. God's promise to preserve the Noahic covenant. Verse 8 and 9, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. God made a covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two or more people. There's terms and conditions, but God is the one who made the covenant. That's the amazing thing. Uh, One commentator, Leupold, says this, divine covenants emanate from God. Therefore, the emphatic I, behold, I, He is the one who makes them. He fixes the terms and the conditions. He, in sovereign freedom, binds himself. That's what we see in this covenant. And what does he say about his covenant? Verse 11, he said, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. is this the first time a rainbow came to be? I'm not gonna go into that, maybe it is. Maybe that was the first time it rained. Whether or not it is, God, I think here's a, a rainbow and God's like, and this is going to be a sign. Here's a physical reminder, this is gonna be a sign for you. That I will never again flood the earth. Some commentators think when you're talking about a bow, it's the same language in Hebrew as like a, an archer's bow, God's hanging up his bow. I think that's reading way too much into what's happening there, but I think, hey, it rains. There's this rainbow. God's created the rainbow to come after the rain. Every time it rains, here's a reminder. I'll never again flood the earth globally. A promise from God. That's that's what is happening there. And again, this is is God's promise to humanity, even though in in, in, uh, Genesis 8.21... God said this about humans, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He's not, God's not saying like, hey, with these eight that I'm gonna repopulate the earth, like everything's gonna be good. No, it's like, you're still gonna have wicked hearts. You're still not gonna do what is right, but I'm making a promise, I will never flood the earth again, globally. I heard just before I was getting ready to preach here that we're getting, we actually get flood warnings Uh, In Alberta, Calgary, Red Deer, we'll see how much it rains. If it does flood, it it will not flood globally. We have that promise from God. Floods still do happen, but we know it will not happen globally. Henry Morris says this, The emphasis is on God's promise rather than man's obligation. As a matter of fact, man's obedience to these commandments was not a condition determining whether God would keep his part of the bargain. Again, so just think, biblical worldview, what comes to mind when you think about rainbow, when I say the word rainbow? What's the first thing that pops in your mind? I see here in Genesis 9, a promise from God, a covenant that God made with everyone, with all people. Right, and so we see this physical sign reminding us of a spiritual reality. Like even as we went through Genesis 1 and 2, as as the sunrise comes up, we're reminded God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And every time I see a sunrise, I'm like, man, God is faithful. There's a physical reminder. I don't know about you, anytime I see the stars in the sky, I'm just like, wow, God's beauty, God's glory display, God's majesty, a physical sign reminded me something spiritual. What does God think of when he sees the rainbow? He's the one who made it. it says in verse 15, I will remember my covenant. When I, verse 14, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. Alan Ross says this, the, the verb remember is used frequently to describe God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Do you see how all-encompassing this covenant is? Did you catch it when we read it? How I will establish my covenant with you in verse 10 with every living creature, like every beast. And then he continues to go on in verses 15 and 16 and 17, all flesh, all flesh, over and over again, like everyone, even the animals. God's making this covenant with them, even though we can have them in barbecue. <laughs> God said, I'm protecting you. The animals will not die again from a global flood. Amazing. So, again, I think a big application of this section of scripture, the Noahic covenant, is how do you see the rainbow? I think that's a huge thing these days. I don't know about you, but when I think of the word rainbow, I honestly, I first off do not think of Genesis 9 or a rainbow in the clouds. That's great marketing. I think of the LGBTQ. When I think of the rainbow, they've they've taken that sign as their flag, which is incredibly ironic. Because not only is the rainbow a promise that God will never flood the earth again, but it's also a reminder that he did. That man was so wicked that God flooded the earth and only eight people survived. That's also what a a rainbow can remind us. But he'll never do it again because of his mercy. But in his mercy, we know that there's going to come a time when Jesus Christ will return, and every knee will have to bow, and every life will have to give an account. And so it's like, yes, there isn't the judgment of the great global flood coming, but everyone will stand before God. So it's incredibly I- ironic, I think, that they would say lift up the rainbow to define them. I, I don't know. More and more, I want to, when I think of a rainbow, when I see a physical rainbow, I want to say, oh yeah, it's God's promise. That's God's promise to all of humanity, to animals. That's what I want to be thinking of first. So again, the rainbow is this this physical reminder of something spiritual, the Noahic covenant. And just thinking of that, so that's the Noahic covenant made to Noah and everyone else. It reminds reminds me of the, the new covenant, right? You know about the new covenant, the one that Jesus made when he died on the cross for our sins, where his body was broken for us, his blood was shed to forgive our sins. And that's why we would take the Lord's Supper, we're gonna take it next week, where we we take the the bread, and we eat the bread to remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. And then we take the cup to remember that his blood was shed for us to, to cleanse us of sin. Again, these physical reminders of a spiritual reality. But friends, that's what we want to be about. Also, is the the new covenant, by faith in Jesus Christ, that's how we would enter. And the Noahic covenant is everyone. Everyone's in the Noahic covenant. God promised to everyone, I'm not going to flood the earth again. The new covenant, the work that Jesus did, is only those who had faith and and would trust in Jesus Christ, that they would be forgiven. So I want you to see that. Again, looking at the next section here, so we see, we see God's, God's sign to preserve, promise to preserve. Now we, I want us to see in 18 to 29, God's people aren't perfect. There's a lot of different details. I'm going to pull out a few, but that's a big thing I really want you to see. In verse 18 and 19, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Think about that, from these three sons and their wives, the whole earth was dispersed. How amazing is that? Genesis 10 gives an account, Genesis 10, 32, after all these kind of like people groups are talked about, that's all Genesis 10, Genesis ten thirty-two says this, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood, from three, Guys, three girls, and they repopulated the earth. It's amazing. And you think about those three brothers. There's no differences at that time. There's no difference in culture and tongue and tribe. They're the same. And in reality, even the whole earth now, on the inside, we're all the same. It's like every we all have the heart in the same place. We all breathe The same way we have blood coming through our veins, we came from the same people, ultimately we came from Adam and Eve, but following the flood from Noah and his three sons. Henry Morris says this, all the physical characteristics of the different nations and tribes must therefore have been present in the genetic constitutions of these six people who came through the flood in the ark. Some by the regular mechanics me- mechanisms of genetics, variation, recombination, all the various groups of nations and tribes must have developed from this beginning, which is amazing to think about. But look at the, how this story continues on, it's actually a little shocking. So this is a time, sometime after the flood, because verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. So enough time that they settled, enough time that he planted a vineyard, enough time that the vineyard grew, and then verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. It's like, what? Like if you were just reading through, like Noah, like righteous, he's righteous, he obeys God, he built the ark, he got into the ark, and, he, and, and you keep reading, like what, what happened Noah? He built a vineyard, he drank the wine, he got drunk, he uncovered his nakedness in his tent. I just wanna kind of pause here for a second. Also just wanna note that this happened for Noah after the, after the storm, after the flood, things had calmed down. Maybe he's gonna kick his feet up. He's gonna relax. That's often when temptation gets us the most. I just wanna point that out. It's when things calm down. Sometimes in the storm, we're like, we're trusting God. We're like, we got nothing else and we're walking. Things calm down and we start to relax. And that's when temptation gets us the most. So we, I think we see this happening to Noah, but I, I just want to pause here for a second drill down. This is the first time when wine or alcohol is mentioned in the Bible, the first time drunkenness is mentioned in the Bible. And what does it lead to? Well, we're going to see it leads to Noah lying out naked on his back. And so I just want to talk about alcohol and drunkenness just for a second. I just want to drill down on that for a moment there's so many warnings in the bible i just want to bring a few of you across talking about drunkenness looking first at um, a few proverbs proverbs 23 to 20 29 to 35 speaks of drunkenness describes it like this who has woe who has sorrow who has strife who has complaining who has wounds without cause who has the redness of eyes those who tarry long over wine those who go to try mix Wine. Do not look at what. excuse me, wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, your heart utter perverse things. Like this is a picture of someone who is drunk, intoxicated. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like going up and down and up and down. One who lies on top of a mast. They struck me, you'll say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. That's speaking of drunkenness. There's so many warnings in Scripture. In Galatians 5.21, we all know Galatians 5.23, the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit, but then there's the fruits of the flesh that come before that, this description of all these kind of wicked things we can be about, and one of them is drunkenness. That's to describe. We know maybe we know Ephesians 5:18. Maybe the second part, like be filled with the Spirit, but the first part is don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. But be filled by the Spirit. This picture of being controlled. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. Don't be controlled by alcohol. So, friends, I just want to bring all these warnings before you in Scripture. If any of you struggle with alcohol, I would love to help, or if there's someone here you trust to reach out to someone and ask for help. So I want you to see the warnings in Scripture, but then I want to talk about the other side too. It's not a sin to have a drink. The Scripture also teaches that as well. We have in Psalm 104, or 114, verse 15, this is written, or speaking of God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. God gives us wine. We, we know in, in John chapter two that Jesus, he, he made water into wine. And I know there's this argument, well, what type of wine? Well, it says the person who's tasting the wine, hey, usually the person, they wait until they, at the very start, they have the best wine. And then they'll give the worst at the end, but you've gave the best at the end. And why would people wait to have the, the, the worst wine at the end? Well, because no one's really tasting the wine anymore, right? They're just like, just drinking. So the wine that Jesus made was actually alcoholic, and I know some people would press that. Then there's 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul says to Timothy, hey, take a little wine for your stomach. I just want you to see that this, there's this tension in scripture, there's great warnings about drunkenness, but there's also, God gives wine. It's not a sin to have a drink. So, so take both of those. I just wanted to pause it for a second. We should tread here lightly, I think, with alcohol. alcohol we should walk slowly. For some, abstinence is what's called for. For some, but if you're like, hey, maybe for me, abstinence, you can't say, hey, you can't drink either. Because the Bible doesn't say that. For me, myself, I was a drunkard when I was a young person. I won't touch alcohol. I'm not tempted by it. People can have a beer around me, that's okay. I'm saying it's, it's but it's not a sin if you have a beer. I want to just show that. There, there's this great warning we want to see in scripture. Noah starts it. <laughs> Noah's the first one. Builds a vineyard, oh great. Gets drunk, passes out. Whoa, what happened Noah? So I wanted to stop there for a second and just think about alcohol. But going back to, to Noah, finding him li- lying down on his back And what happens after this? This is a a weird story. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. And it doesn't seem like a big deal. Why is that such a big deal? Because he gets cursed after or his family coming after him. So just, just think about this. Why is it such a big deal? Alan Ross explains it this way. It's difficult for people living in the modern world to understand and appreciate the modesty and discretion of privacy called for in ancient morality. Nakedness in the Old Testament was from the beginning the thing of shame for fallen humankind. Think Adam and Eve as sinners, the state of nakedness. They brought them undignity and, and they're vulnerable. And the fact that he was naked... And it says he saw the nakedness of his father. Sarfati was helpful there. He said the Hebrew in this case means that he looked at, but in the sense more of violating a boundary. Like he looked where he wasn't supposed to look, and he, he kept gazing upon it. It wasn't just a brief glance. He just like he took it all in. He did something he wasn't supposed to. Leopold suggests that Ham gazed with satisfaction at Noah. So instead of honoring his father, he was like disrespecting him and disrespecting him to such an extent that he went and goes and tells his brothers, hey, you gotta see dad. What a fool. Like that's kind of what's happening here. It's even more so. It's even more intense. But look at the reaction of his brothers. Verse 23, then Shem and Jephthah took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Friends, I just want you to see this here for a moment, with what's going on. Look at the, the brothers reacted differently. I don't think this was sexual sin, but we can use it as analogy for sexual sin. What, how, where do our eyes go? How do we react? Ham, Ham's like, I'm taking it in. I'm laughing at it. I'm telling others, come and see. And then what about his brothers, Shem and Jathaf? They go get a garment, and they're looking the other way. They're not even getting a glance. Friends, men, that's how we need to be for sexual purity. Don't take, don't look, don't take it in, don't call others. Turn. Don't even get a glance. So we see here also this call to purity that their brothers acted on, Shem and Jathath. I think a strong warning to us about our eyes. May we not turn, may we not look, may we to look away. Close your eyes if you have to. Man, I know our world is filled with so much garbage. But if you're in the Lord, man, we're called to look away. At so much that is out there. And so look at what happened as Noah came, as he woke, verse 21, when Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. I don't know how he found out, but he found out right away. And he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. There's There's a lot going on here. We don't have time to cover it all, but why is Canaan cursed? That's one of Ham's youngest sons or Ham's youngest son. And if you notice in the text, it's said over and over again, and he mentions Ham, the father of Canaan, mentions Ham, the father of Canaan. And then when Noah wakes and he curses, he's cursed be Canaan and calls Canaan to be a servant of his brothers or of his ancestors like three times. And what why, what's going on there? This curse I think seems to represent a an oracle or a prophecy of God for the Canaanite people. Because as we we go into biblical history, you see the Canaanite people are a wicked people. And then God would call uh, the Hebrews as they go into the land of Israel and to like wipe them out. There's all these great warnings about the Canaanite people. And I I think uh, some commentators believe, and I, I believe it is too, like when Noah cursed, Canaan, he's speaking of the people group to come. They were going to take the characteristics of their forefather Ham and be way worse. And so prophetically, here's a curse on the Canaanites. So we see this, we see this in scripture in Leviticus 18. There's this warning, Leviticus 18 verses 2 going, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And then there's this whole list in in Leviticus 18 of all these unlawful sexual relationships over and over again talking about nakedness. They just like, what Ham did, they did way more. And so the Canaanite culture was actually It was known for their sexual immorality. It was known for their worship of of Baal, cult prostitution, known for their their worship of Moloch and sacrificing children uh, to the gods there, and they're wicked. And so almost prophetically, Noah is is speaking a curse on them. I believe that's what's happening. I just want to point out one thing. This scripture that's used, that's saying is, is Canaan, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of a servant shall he be to his brothers. I just want to point out that this scripture was used by some to promote slavery. They said, oh, yeah, the Canaanites, or Ham, from his descendants, that's African people, and they're to be servants, they're to be slaves. And it was, it was used in, in a number of places, but it was used in the United States. And in the United States, their, their declaration of independence They have this in there, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And so how do you get around that? Well, they went to the scripture. Oh, no, the descendants of Canaan, which is totally wicked, which is totally wrong. It's garbage if we understand scripture, if if we read it at all, even if we understand the New Testament, right? In Christ, there's like, there's no Greek... There's no Jew, there's no slave, there's no free. And in fact, even a Christian, William Wilberforce, motivated by the Bible, led the abolitionist movement. If you don't know know about William Wilberforce, check out the movie Amazing Grace. Get a sense of what he did. I just want to point that out to you if you knew that history. So there's a curse for Canaan, there's a blessing. Verse 26, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaans be his sermon. Why why this blessing on Shem? Well, from Shem is gonna come Israel. From Israel is gonna come Judah, 12 tribes. From Judah is gonna come David. From David, follow the line, Jesus Christ. Blessed be Shem. The Lord, the God of Shem. So I think that's what's being said there. I think that's what the blessing is. And then verse 27, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. Maybe this was fulfilled when King David ruled the Philistines. Maybe it's fulfilled ultimately in Christ because you have for the Japhethites, the Greeks and the Romans and Shem, you have Israelites, Jesus Christ Ephesians 6.3 says this, The mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, like we come into Jesus Christ. Maybe that is when it's ultimately fulfilled. So saying all that, there's so many different details going on. You know, I'm like, I'm over here, I'm talking about uh, why we kill people, <laughs> why life matters, talking about the rainbow, talking about drunkenness, there's a lot covered. I want you to see, especially on this last section, if I lost you for a moment, come back, Noah, Noah, a righteous man. This is how his story ends. Twenty-eight. After the flood, Noah lived three hundred fifty years. All the days of Noah were nine hundred fifty years, and he died. Why this story? Why this? Noah was righteous. He obeyed God. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then this story to finish. Now he built a vineyard. He got drunk. And again, actually, I think this points to the truthfulness of Scripture, right? Like, I don't know about you, if I was writing the Bible, yeah, Noah's a righteous man. He built the ark. He got off the boat of flood, and he died. <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't tell that story if I was writing, you know, you only want the good stuff. But the Bible tells it all. The Bible tells all things, not leaving out the dirt or the stains of a person's story. We don't have every detail. But I want you again to see here, as proves the faithfulness of this word, I want you to see that Noah was a man of faith, but he was not perfect. And praise the Lord for that. I'm encouraged by his failure, not the act of it, but that God uses sinners to do his will. God uses imperfect people to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Friends, I just want to remind you of of something Jesus said. Just to finish, in Matthew 9, 9 to 13, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And tax collectors were hated. They were the outcasts of society. They're sinners. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to His disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do. Jesus came for the sick. Verse 13, he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for sinners. God's people aren't perfect. That's why we need Jesus. I love when I, when I see that Jesus didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. Noah fits that bill. I know I fit that bill. Do you fit that bill? What does that response warrant? We see God uses the imperfect people. We see Jesus said, come to me those who are sick. That's who he came for. I believe it's like if you see, like, man, you're sinful, you're broken. Come to Jesus. That's what you do. You come to Jesus and you give him your life. You ask for forgiveness, you ask for his mercy, and he gives it. I just want you to see that. Actually, I appreciate that story of Noah's in there. Because God uses imperfect, broken people. That's what he does. So we should surrender to that type of love, that type of work. So I want us to see this morning, Genesis 9, I know we covered a lot. Coming off the ark, it's all about God. God commands to multiply, we see God's promise to preserve, marked by the rainbow. And friends, I want you to see and take to heart, God's people aren't perfect. Those are the ones Jesus came for. If you wanna bow with me, I close this time. It's word in prayer. Oh, Lord, there's so much going on in these texts. I pray, Lord, that you would use it in our hearts and in our lives. Again, I, I pray, Lord, that that which is from you would, would be sealed in our hearts by your spirit. Allow us to walk in it. That which is not from you, I pray, would just fall to the side. We would forget. But, Lord, I, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the meaning of the rainbow. And I thank you for Jesus Christ, and the call to sinners like, like me, like all of us, oh, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.